Well, let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Normally we're studying through the Bible chapter by chapter, book by book, right? Systematic survey of the entire Bible. But we're at the end of Ecclesiastes, the beginning of the Song of Solomon. And so this morning as we have the chance, we are also making our way through the Gospel of Mark. So Mark chapter 9, we are following Jesus here in the last half of Mark on his way to Jerusalem where he is going to accomplish our salvation on the cross. So he has begun to move to Jerusalem. And uh, last time we were together in Mark, we saw the transfiguration. You know, those, uh, you ever heard of those mountaintop experiences? Well, you know, they had one there, and that's kind of where we get the idea and the terminology for that. You get away in a moment of kind of clearing the deck and focus on the Lord, maybe it's a retreat, maybe it's just a weekend, maybe it's just, um, you know, an afternoon, and you have a chance to be with the Lord, and there's great intimacy, there's great clarity, you see the Lord in new ways, but we can't stay there, can we? We can't stay on those mountaintops, we have to go back down the hill to where there's a needy world, we live at the bottom, right? But we can take what we've seen and heard and what we've learned about the Lord and go into that fallen world and be salt and light. That's the meaning of those mountaintop experiences. And that's what happens to the disciples. Remember Peter, James, John, we're up on the mountain there in Mark. We pick it up in verse 14, Mark chapter 9. Uh, As they come back from their excursion to top of Mount Hermon or something around that area, the way up in the north of the Sea of Galilee, And it says, verse 14, when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and the scribes disputing with them. Immediately immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit and whatever it seizes him. It throws him down, he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. So again, uh, they come down, and um, you know, there's a, just always a large crowd looking for Jesus, hanging around. And uh, so when Peter, James, John, with Peter, I mean with Jesus, show up, you know, it's a big religious crowd. What do you what do you find when you get a big religious crowd of people? Well, you find Unfortunately, you find a lot of disputes. (laughs) You find uh, possibly some very defeated disciples. And you find those who are um, needing help from the devil's oppression. Sometimes looking for help and not getting it. So, but you know what? It's okay. You know, it's, it's an okay place to be, you know, in some ways. Because where his disciples are, Jesus shows up. And um, so that's what happens. He shows up, and this father here has a son who is oppressed in some ways. There, obviously, foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, becomes rigid. You know, what a terrible thing for a family to have to endure this kind of dramatic, I mean, it just would have, you know, set the pace for the whole family. The family is locked down to this. And so he comes and brings them to the, to the Lord, um, but the Lord isn't around. What he finds is disciples who can't do anything. And so um, here's Jesus, and he answers and says, O faithless generation, 
How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, faithless generation, I think he's talking to the whole scene here. Um, you know, there's, there's obviously contentious scribes. They're no help. Um, it's kind of interesting, you know, that they might be in an argument with the disciples, you know, pointing out how come you can't, can't uh, cast out this demon if you guys are so hot, you know, if you guys are the apostles. Uh, you know, I think that's a funny argument. If, if, if you want to criticize those who can't, why don't you do? But they can't either. Yeah, the, the um, contentious scribes have no power themselves. There's a desperate father, and, and we can understand that. He um, is struggling in his faith, obviously. And then there's some unsuccessful disciples. We, you know, the Lord had already given him power over and sent them out a couple of times. Why, why are they in this state of having no success, seeing no, no spiritual success? So um, he says, how long shall I bear with you? Bring them to me. And then they brought him, the boy, to him, being Jesus. And so then when he, the boy, saw Jesus, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. You know, this really just speaks to the, the, um, the evil and the... Uh, just the just the the horrible nature of the enemy. He knows his time is limited in this boy's life, and he tries to do as much damage as he can. The last few moments he has, and so he uh, he being Jesus, verse twenty one, asked his father, "How long has this been happening to him?" His father said, "From childhood, he has often thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him." But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And so, uh, if you can, you know, the, the, the father um, comes to Jesus in very timid faith. But you know what? He is coming to Jesus. That's, that's the right thing. And, you know, Jesus, I don't get the sense that Jesus is angry with this man. And it is important to know, I think, to see that in this story. Because, look, what he's going through, what the Father's going through in this, um, this position of wrestling with unbelief is something I, I think all of us sometime are going to go through. We're going to get to a place where we wonder. You know, and do I have, we're going to get the place where we struggle with, with having enough faith to know that God can do this. And, and it's all different for everybody else, for everybody. You might have great faith in regards to um, finances or healing or uh, provision or guidance. But somebody else, one of your other brothers and sisters in the Lord might not be there in the same place. And they struggle with something else. You know, what we don't want to do is, is condemn our brothers and sisters who don't have the faith in that moment or struggle that way, but help them. So Jesus says to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Again, the, the, the limitation here isn't on Jesus' part, is it? It's Jesus doesn't struggle with power over what's going on here. He doesn't seem like he's, uh, he, he certainly isn't... Um, 
whipping himself up into some sort of frenzy or, or, or anything. He's, he seems like he's very calm. He just wants to know a few facts. And then he's going to deal with it. But he says, you know, the, the point isn't about whether or not I can do something. The point is whether or not you can believe. You know, when we get into those places where we need the faith, you know, the Lord will, will very gently point that out to us. Again, it's not a point of, why don't you believe? It isn't, it isn't a condemning thing. It's, okay, let's, let's look at the situation here. You know, I can do this, but the limitation is on your faith. And, and I think that one of the most honest things that anybody says in the scriptures in a moment of struggling is said by this man here. He says, verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And, um, um, you know, he's challenged by Jesus' exhortation to faith. And he's, he expresses what, what I think, again, anybody who follows the Lord eventually comes to a point of realizing about themselves. I struggle with, with unbelief in some area. And, and, but you know what, that, again, that's, to say that to the Lord is a statement of faith in itself, right? It's not, a, it's not an unbelief of rebellion or, or something like that. This is a statement of saying, Lord, I do believe, but I, I recognize that I don't have all the faith I should. Um, again, you can only say this by faith. Um, Charles Spurgeon said this. I think it's a really good quote. He says, while men have no faith, they are unconscious of their unbelief. But as soon as they get a little faith, they begin to be conscious of the greatness of their unbelief. Our unbelief really um, comes to light in those moments when we come to the Lord. So the, the Father expresses this inner battle of faith and unbelief, as I think is experienced by everybody and all, all people following the Lord in all ages. And the Lord graciously solves his problem. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. So the boy's there, and it says, And he, the boy, became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Gave him back to his father. What a beautiful picture. Um, I, I like the way Jesus does something else here in that he secures the future for this family too. He says, come out of him, but he also says, enter him no more. Because, you know, there would be the fear in the father and in the family. Every time the boy, you know, takes a nap and starts to snore or something, that, oh, he's back. But uh, he has secured this boy's future. I think it's a beautiful way of Jesus, um, again, seeing to uh, their needs. In verse 28, he says, And when he came into the house, <clears throat> so they're, uh, they're probably around the north of the Sea of Galilee, traveling back to uh, Jerusalem, and, they, and as they stayed in the north, it was usually around Capernaum, and in Capernaum they would probably stay at Peter's house. That's where Peter um, uh, had his residence and had his business on the Sea of Galilee. And um, it was a sort of a headquarters for Jesus' ministry in some ways. They, they, uh, when, he, when he came into the house, 
His disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? That's a good question. So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Well, that's an interesting response, isn't it? This can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting, this kind. You know, that's a, that's a strange phrase for Jesus to say. He didn't say, all demons only come out, or this, this kind of spiritual warfare is only won by, by prayer and fasting. There, is a, there is, seems to be something Jesus is saying about a different kind. And uh, you can do with it what you want, you know. Um, uh, the, the scriptures elsewhere in Ephesians says that there are principalities, powers, authorities, it makes sense that there would be some spiritual entities, fallen spiritual uh, entities that are stronger, that are tougher, more stubborn, more resilient. Um, you know, he doesn't clarify it completely, but he does say it only comes out by prayer and fasting. Well, that's, that seems odd. It seems odd that, that, that he would say that. It, it would... You know, in my response to say, well, if it was me there, I said, well, I wouldn't have time to fast and pray. The kid was dropped on me right then. I, I don't have time to fast and pray at that point. Mm, that's the point Jesus is making. You don't have time when the situation is dropped on you to fast and pray then. Yeah, he's saying, he's saying if you're going to be a disciple ready for the spiritual moment when you need a uh, a significant connection to heaven that, that needs extra right here, right now. I need a strong connection to heaven right here, right now. It needs to already be in place. It's, you can't go out and find it in that moment many times. You need, to, um, you need to foster that with fasting and prayer. A lifestyle of fasting and prayer is what he's saying. You know, um, um, we're, we understand the thing of prayer, right? Praying is to seek the Lord and give our attention to him, a time of communion, a time of talking to him. Um, you know, that's different from a devotional life. A devotional life can, can include prayer. A devotional life, you can, you can be in a place and, and meditate on the Lord, think about his word, think about his goodness, think about... You know the, how the, the creation demonstrates his his power, his his eternal nature, or the beauty of what he's created. You know these devotional thoughts are are awesome and they're necessary and they're good. But a prayer life is something different. A prayer life is where we seek the Lord intentionally, and we talk to Him, we focus on Him, we want to hear from Him, and uh, fasting's you know a, a, a more serious. Um, effort in there and, and fasting you, you probably know what fasting is classically fasting it would be where we would um, uh, go without a meal go without some food when we could be eating and instead um, pray and think about the Lord I mean think about it we're very used to catering to the demands of our flesh on a very regular cadence breakfast lunch dinner snack Breakfast, lunch, dinners, you know, you can just go on days on end. That's every day. That's a lot of time and a lot of energy, a lot of, a lot of thinking. Every day at our house, we, it's kind of like a quick draw contest. Who, who can ask the question, what do you want for dinner? What do you want for dinner? It's kind of back and forth until, 
You know, if we didn't have to eat, wow, think of the time and energy we would save. But we do, still. You know, the flesh is very used to being catered to in those ways. What if we were to take some of that time, some of that energy, some of that attention, and give it to praying and focusing on the Lord? You know, we're free to eat. So when we set aside food, that's a very serious thing. The Lord pays attention to that. You know, the fasting strengthens my spirit and weakens my flesh. And anything that does that, I think we ought to be in favor of. Um, You know, you, average American, me, average American, we eat a lot of food. We eat a lot of food. Uh, If you just drink three cups of coffee, three eight-ounce cups of coffee, last year you drank 68 gallons of coffee. How does that make you feel? Restrooms are available after the service. Don't come now. Uh, you had you ate 31 pounds of cheese last year, chances are, right? Most of that was on pizza. I hope you tipped the guy well when he brought that thing to you. I mean, that was a big pizza. Uh, you probably had 185 pounds of chicken, pork, and beef last year. You feeling full? Uh, you probably, okay, here's one. It might uh, stun you. You probably ate 85 pounds of butter last year. Don't tell your cardiologist that. Um, okay, you know, over in your lifetime, you're probably going to eat 35 tons of food in your lifetime. Is it worth it to set aside a few ounces of chicken, cheese, beef, to hear from the Lord at a critical time in your life, to see the Lord do something on behalf of your family, those loved ones that need a touch from the Lord? You know, judge it. Judge it yourself. Is it worth it, the effort to go without in order to strengthen your spiritual life? Scriptures say that, that fasting is an important spiritual discipline for the life of the, in the life of the disciple. And uh, the point of this, what Jesus is saying is, you need to foster a life of fasting and prayer because you don't know when that moment is going to be dropped on you and you're going to need that spiritual power. Now, we're not saying that the Lord can't meet you in a moment, in his own choice, when you need it. He will. He's full of grace and mercy. He'll meet you in, in, the, in those moments that come unexpectedly. But let's not be casual with the, with the issues here. If we're going to go forward with the Lord and, and want to be used in that miraculous moment, we don't know when it's going to show up, then let's foster a lifestyle of fasting and prayer. So they departed from there, verse 30, and passing through Galilee, they're headed south. He didn't want anyone to know it. He doesn't want people to hinder and, and, the, and the popularity of who he is and his notoriety to hinder him from getting to Jerusalem for the Passover. For he taught his disciples and said to them, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, they, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, uh, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be greatest. So now they finally arrive at Capernaum. I got that wrong. 
And um, they uh, uh, are obviously having a discussion on the road, the scripture says, and, and when Jesus gets into their house, he, he says, so what were you guys talking about there? He noticed that they're having an animated discussion probably, and <laughs> they're embarrassed to answer. Mm. Uh, they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. You know, they had just come down from seeing um, a outward sign of the kingdom of God present with power, and it probably fostered the idea of of rewards and and privilege and the kingdom now. And so, you know, they were talking about I'm better than you are, and he's better than you, and so let's put each other in rank. It's a very, very, very carnal, very self-centered thing to be doing. And, you know, I'm comforted by that. (laughs) Uh, We find ourselves in the midst of very normal men, Um, very very self-centered people. And, you know what, that's that's okay. The Lord's going to use them. He sees them, sees beyond that, and he knows they need teaching. But he sat down, that's the, that's the position that a teacher would take, that's the indication he's now going to teach them. And he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Um, you know, they, their discussion was who would be first in the kingdom? Who would be better? Who would be the top dog? And so Jesus begins to teach about being great. What is great in the kingdom? Um, you know, if, if we are not going to look at reality the reality of the kingdom, we're not going to see that. We're not going to see what is truly great in the kingdom. Um, You know, we are being transferred into the image of him who created us anew, Scripture tells us. And so um, when he says he is talking about who is first in the kingdom, he is first in the kingdom. And so he's going to give us a glimpse of his own nature and the nature that we are being transformed into. So, he says, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, you know, I I went to college. Uh, I don't remember anywhere in the campus catalog a class on being last of all and servant of all. I saw management and how to get to the top. Um, There's not a lot of it's not a lot of worldly applause for servants and for being last. We're taught just the opposite. Um, it doesn't mean you can't get an education. It doesn't mean you can't learn skills of management and leading. But we need to see those things in light of being a servant and being last. So he says, a servant. What does a servant do? Well, a servant exists for others. A servant puts others first. I mean, that's why I would hire a servant is to do the stuff I don't want it to. In my house, he can, clean the, he can clean the house, he can feed the dog, and he can, you know, do the laundry. So the Lord's calling me to be a servant. 
then those might be my jobs. Servants make life easier and better for others. Um, It's the opposite of what the world says. This world says become important by having a lot of people serve you. The kingdom, Jesus here, the first in the kingdom says you become great in the kingdom by serving a lot of other people. A servant sees others um, as over them and more important. And their needs are important. The servant, yeah. And the servant then also says um, you should be last. Again, you know, those who are, who are last, we, we, uh, you can get, you can get uh, on the news by being first in line for the Star Wars tickets. You know, you'll have to camp out for a few days. Uh, who's last in line? No one cares. <laughs> no. No one cares. The last is forgotten. The last is not noticed. So, um, you know, those who are going to be great in the kingdom need to deliberately infuse their life with this idea. I'm going to be a servant of others. I'm going to put myself last. I don't care about being noticed. I don't care about the reputation. That's, That's so opposite of our natural tendencies, isn't it? We'd love to be noticed. We'd love to be first. We'd love to be applauded. That's our flesh, our pride. You know, we can always check ourselves. This is what I um, heard in Bible college. It was true then. It's true now. We can always check ourselves, how we're doing in these categories, by noticing how we react when we are treated like a servant, when we are forgotten, when we are unnoticed. Because those who are truly after that nature don't care about those things. So often it's me, I, I get unnoticed, I, you know, get the servant, someone treats me like a servant, and, ooh, you know, you feel that reaction. Check myself and check ourselves in those moments. I must care about those things. But this is, this is Jesus towards us, too. It's not towards us generally, it's towards us individually. Jesus is a servant towards you. And put you first, ahead of his own needs. And that ultimately, that's what he did, right? He took your needs, my needs, our ultimate need, the forgiveness of sin. And he made that, he made that his. He made that his, his own responsibility, making himself responsible for our sin individually on the cross. He truly is the servant of all. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he says also, when uh, he picks up a child, child regarded more like property than an individual in those times. Children were, were supposed to be seen and not heard. So he picks one up, and he had taken him into his arms. I like that picture. And he says, you received one of these in my name. And we're going to follow that phrase here, in my name, closely. And if you don't, you don't just receive them because it's done in my name. You're receiving me. And if you receive me, you're receiving him who sent me, which would be the Father. Um, so really, you know, he's talking about great people. Great people do great acts, right? In the kingdom, that's what we would see. Those who are great in the kingdom would do great acts. This is a great act. What is it? Well, um, um, it's to recognize um, and show kindness to those who are least esteemed 
And um, that's an act of greatness. To find the people that the world would overlook. Be kind to them. Give them time and attention. It's a great act. It's very important. Um, You know, uh, if we're going to be worldly-minded, we're going to get lost in worldly emphasis of titles and positions, power, reputation, needing recognition, loving recognition. But the kingdom-minded is to not buy that, is to reject that. And to see the vulnerable, the forgotten, see everybody as the same. And uh, everybody's worthy of attention. Everybody's worthy, worthy of respect and kindness and time. Notice it's in my name. He says more than this because we're talking about, um, he's talking about uh, what is great in the kingdom. And so John and his disciples say, they, hey, we think we did a great thing here. He says, now John answered them saying, teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he does not follow us. He thought he was doing a great thing. He's not part of our team and so we stopped him. Jesus says, do not forbid him for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me for he who is not against us is on our side. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Again, we're talking about great things, great people doing great things in the kingdom of God. What makes somebody great? A servant. Last. Um, Recognizing and and, um, acknowledging those who are vulnerable and forgotten. You know, the disciples might have been, John, might have been uh, a little frustrated with this guy, whoever this disciple was, we don't know who it is, uh, casting out demons when they could not. So um, they stopped him. But it was done, remember, it was done there. Look closely at verse 38. He was casting out demons in your name, Lord. We forbade him because not follow us. He's not part of our group. Um, well, Jesus, I think here, um, speaks towards this idea here, which would, we would give it a fancy name, sectarianism, you know. You're not part of our group, so you're wrong. Um, you know, look, this guy doesn't seem to have been teaching false doctrine, whoever this unnamed disciple is. He's not in sin. He's just not with the disciples. Uh, maybe he's one of John the Baptist's disciples, that's a, good, that's a good guess on who this guy is. Maybe he's one of the 70 that Jesus sent out in Luke chapter uh, 10. He sent out 70, gave them equivalent power that he did done to the other disciples. And when they came back, maybe he said, you know, uh, well, you know, that's all the Lord has for me right now. I got to go do some other things. That's fine. That's fine. But he still held faith. He's still walking in good conscience before the Lord. He's still an influence for the Lord. He's still doing good works. But he's not part of our group. Uh, Jesus says, don't don't be like that. That's that's the wrong way. Um, That's the wrong way to be. Uh, David Guzik, Bible commentator in Calvary, says this. There are many that may be wrong in some aspect of their presentation or teaching, yet they still set forth Jesus in some manner. Let God deal with them. Those who are not against a biblical Jesus are still for him in some way. Um, you know, the, the, the key here is to recognize that 
he's holding to an accurate, whoever this unnamed disciple is, he's still holding to an accurate biblical Jesus. Um, you know, there's lots of people out there that are different from Calvary Chapel. Uh, lots of churches, lots of ministries, and they're doing good work. They're just not like us, and that's okay. Um, you know, my own personal life has uh, a testimony to this. I got saved listening to the radio to a guy who preached the gospel that day and led somebody, unnamed person listening to the radio station that day, me, in a prayer of repentance and to receive the Lord, and I did it. Now, as I grew up in the Lord, I, I saw that this radio guy, I would never recommend to that guy to anybody but I got saved that day Jesus will honor the presentation of the gospel and um, you know it, it kind of speaks to the idea of compatibility in some ways uh, and essentials um, look there there are essentials that we need to hold to um, if we're going to be Staying within the camp of Christianity and biblical Christianity, um, there are essential Christian doctrines. Um, there is uh, making is agreeing that who Jesus has said He is, He is. All the cults reduce Jesus in some way. We need to hold to that Jesus was born of a virgin birth, sinless. He's fully God, fully man. That He lived a sinless life. I think I said that. And that he died literally on the cross for our sins. That he was buried and he rose bodily from the dead on the third day. And um, um, if we hold to those in the preaching of the gospel, then we'll be saved. Now, there are a mass of other doctrines, obviously, spiritual truths that go and, and uh, come out of you know, the Bible and the teaching of spiritual doctrines. You don't get saved by those things. But let me clarify, I'm not saying that there are no consequences to bad doctrine. There are. And that's why you know, the Bible gives us doctrine so that we can know the truth and can know the freedom that doctrine, true doctrine, brings. And it's, it's, I think, any disciple's desire to be in the truth completely so that we might see God's will for our lives in unlimited ways. Who doesn't want to glorify the Lord to the most? Then one of the things we should emphasize is learning good doctrine. However, not every church is going to teach the same thing on those non-essential doctrines. And that's, that's just the reality. You know that. Um, it doesn't mean they're not believers if they hold to those doctrines. They might be doing good work in helping the poor, in reaching out to some class of person that we, we just can't. But they don't believe the same thing in some non-essential doctrine. Okay, I'm going to pick one just for an example. The rapture of the church. I think the church scriptures plainly teach that there will be a pre-tribulational uh, rapture, and uh, I think that's an, a, a, exactly what the scriptures teach. I think there are great benefits to holding to the idea that his return is imminent. We don't know when he can return, and there's nothing hindering from returning right now. It, it, it brings us a great deal of urgency to be pure, to be about the Lord's business, to be serious-minded. I, I think that's 
I think that's the case. However, there are people who don't hold to the pre-trib rapture, who are believers. I think, that, I think they are doing damage to their walk with the Lord in some ways. But, look, here's, here's, the, um, here's the bottom line. If, if we have correct doctrine, then we ought to be the most spiritual people that you can find. I mean, that's the goal of doctrine, is to produce spiritual people. People who have the gifts and the, and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And if we have good doctrine, we ought to be the highest examples of those things. Is it? You know, ask yourself, is it producing those attitudes, those fruits of the Holy Spirit? You know, there was a time in my life when I had all the facts, but I was extremely judgmental. And I had to be called on it by somebody who didn't hold to the truth, the, the, the same doctrine as I did, and they, just, they had to set me straight. You had all the facts, but you are, are, are judging. I was judging people. We ought to be the most loving, patient, kind, generous, forgiving people. Someone's not exactly like me. Well, rejoice in their work that's done in the Lord's name. Consider them a brother or sister in the Lord until you know for certain otherwise. Jesus says, he who is not against us is on our side. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Again, great things done in the Lord's name. This is a a very small thing, outward, worldly thing, a cup of cold water. How does that compare to casting out a demon? You know, you rank one here and one there. But Jesus says, no, look, not even the smallest thing done in my name goes unnoticed and unrewarded. They're all done. They're all rewarded. They're all done. And he goes on to talk about great things. We want to talk about things that are very important. That's a way of saying great, things that are very important. If you want to, he's, Jesus is almost saying like, okay, if you want to exert yourself towards things that are great, if you want to go out and find things you know, you, you found a great thing that needs to be addressed. Somebody not with us. You want to exert yourself there in terms of stopping something that's not right? Here, Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You want to emphasize and focus on things that need to be different? Don't stumble little ones. Don't stumble little ones, yeah. <clears throat> You know, I think this is right here where our Western society is in big trouble. We have invested heavily, our culture has, in telling people, telling little ones that God's not the creator, that he did not create, that the Bible is not true. I think our society is in, uh, very, has, has some very serious answering towards the Lord to do there. Um, you know, the disciple must consider the effect of our words and our actions on others. It's very important. Don't stumble others. Um, okay, and, and you know, what's a Bible study with Lane without some crazy math and science? So let's just say, uh, if you were uh, given a millstone and hung around your neck, you were thrown to the middle of the sea, 
Millstones go anywhere from 100 to 1,000 pounds. Let's just put you in the middle. Let's give you a mid-size model. Um, uh, 500 pounds. Let's duct tape you to it and drop you into the Marianas Trench. It'll take you about a minute and a half to get to the bottom. (laughs) And uh, if you can hold your breath that long, well, you're going to impact the bottom really fast. Look, you've got bad options if that's the best thing you can come up with being dropped to the bottom of the sea with a millstone. Jesus is saying this is super, super serious. Don't stumble, people who are believing in me. Deal very, very seriously with it. Here's something he says. If your hand causes you to sin, if that's a point of offense, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maim or lame, uh, that says lame, not lane, rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. You want to go to work on things that offend you, John? That's what he did, right? You found something you thought was wrong. Okay, you want to take that time and energy? Turn it on yourself. Um, um, there's three things he, he lists here. The hand, the foot, the eye. Um, you need to work on offenses. Turn that on yourself. What, what does that represent? Hand, foot, and eye. Is Jesus is obviously not um, exhorting us to self-mutilation. Because let's just face it. I could cut off a large number of I can mutilate my body to a great degree and still be just as greedy, just as short-tempered, just as angry, just as arrogant as I was when I had all this stuff. So he's, he's saying, look, you find the source of sin in your own life and deal radically with it. What does a hand, foot, and eye possibly represent? Hand, maybe deeds, the foot, the manner of life, or eye, the things we crave. Uh, commentator William McDonald said this, those who set out on a path of true discipleship must constantly battle with natural desires and appetites. To cater to them spells ruin. To control them ensures spiritual victory. Deal radically with whatever in life it is that's hindering you. It doesn't take much personal reflection to come up with something. You don't need to spend hours in analysis. You're probably thinking of something right now. Something that's got to go. And look, um, you know, we try to mix in some humor at the Bible studies, keep you from uh, thinking we're really boring. But and there's times when humor is not appropriate, and we've reached some verses that's not. Um, Jesus says one verse three times here. He says, um, uh, rather than having whatever you have to go to hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. Um, 
the, the word translated hell there is, um, is a translation of a Hebrew word that means the Valley of Hinnom. Outside this, the, the um, Jerusalem walls, there was a uh, place where they became defiled because of in their low point, Israel's low point, before they went into captivity, they were involved in uh, human sacrifice and, um, and worship of Molech, and they just considered that area totally defiled. So it became a garbage dump. And they would burn the garbage, and there'd be rotten garbage, and there'd be stink and worms and smoke. And it became a very fitting um, idiom for the concept of hell. Look, it's tremendously solemn um, to talk about the reality of hell. But it's, the scripture brings us there to look at it once in a while. And um, we all deserve to be there. Not someday. We should have been there long ago. We're not. We're not there. Praise the Lord. We're not there because of his grace and his mercy. And that concept of, when you look at that concept of hell, it makes the gospel shine all that brighter, doesn't it? Jesus took your sin and paid for it. He paid the penalty that you don't have to go to hell. So find those things that are stumbling you. And in the vernacular, cut it out. Cut it out. That's what he's saying. There's funny little verses at the end there, I think, sum it up, verse 49 and 50, very nicely. Again, we're talking about things that are great in the kingdom. We need to look clearly at what is great, what is very important in the kingdom. And he's given us, obviously, a, a very clear shot of reality here. It says, everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Um, you know, it pictures the believer's life as a sacrifice to God. Every sacrifice that they were supposed to offer on the altar was to be seasoned with salt. Leviticus chapter 2 tells us that. It was called the salt of the covenant. And being the salt of the covenant is something you couldn't change. So, salted with fire, what does that mean? Well, I believe it's supposed to be self-judgment, self-denial. Salted with salt, the salt of the covenant, it's an unalterable commitment. That's what you have made. Don't change it. Again, I'm going to quote William McDonald as we close here, sum this up. William McDonald said, if a believer goes back on his vows or fails to deal drastically with his sinful desires, then his life will be savorless, worthless, pointless. Therefore, they should eradicate anything from their life that would interfere with the divinely appointed mission, and he should maintain peaceful relations with other believers. So the Lord has spoken to us about great things. Let's take it to heart. Let's stand and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, that you do to give light and truth. And we thank you for this bit of light and truth you've given us this morning out of your word. We love your word, Lord. We love you. Help us to follow you closely, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Use us this week. Send us out filled with your spirit to be salt and light in this world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.